Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which I feel strongly in my soul count. Wow, that's we're bringing the soul into this already. Well, I, I'm the mischievous Marchinacchio. I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count. Although I, I don't know if I'm ready to like put my soul up for auction uh, in exchange for this debate. You're just kind of taking it to a new level, Dan, and I, I'm uncomfortable now. I mean, I'm willing to go to Peter Parker's lengths to to save Aunt May's life, but this time over annuals. So I, I might be an even bigger patsy. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for our beyond amazing celebration of Spider-Man's 60th anniversary on The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. So this is the perfect time to start listening. Yeah, and I will issue a quick reminder. We have our secondary feed, the Amazing Spider Talk back issues with some of our oldest content as it gets buffered out of our main feed. Uh, So if you're looking for interviews with like Mark Bagley, the legendary Tom DeFalco, all of our oldest friends, Jerry Conway, they are going to be over in the Amazing Spider Talk back issues feed. So go check that out and leave us a review if you can. But Mark, what are we going to be doing today on the show? Yeah, this is a new issue, Dan, and it's a heck of a new one. We we will be continuing our Beyond Amazing celebration of Spider-Man's first appearance in Amazing Fantasy number 15, 60 years ago. With each episode of the series, we're going to be taking a very specific lens and applying it to the history of the character. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the prime specimen itself, the reason for our celebration. That's right. We are talking about Spider-Man's origin in the pages of Amazing Fantasy number 15. But Mark, talking about a legendary story wouldn't be enough for a celebration as special as its 60th anniversary. So we brought in Marvel editor and contributor on the upcoming book, Spider-Man Panel by Panel, the equally legendary Tom Brevoort. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they create. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends, they're an amazing friend, a friend, a friend, a friend, they're an amazing friend. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Uh, Why, thank you. Uh, And we settled this question the last time I was here. The annuals count. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't want to pull out that trump card, but uh, but, uh, thank you, Tom. That's just a fact. (laughs) 
I will I will concede just because you know you are we 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 have a couple of of legendary Toms that have been on this show. You are you are the current legendary Tom, and I, I don't want to show disrespect to to our guest here, but but you know I I, I do want to say when when the curtain closes on this episode and I slink off into the night thinking about the lessons I've learned. The annual fight will continue on. So uh, <laughs> just putting that out there. <laughs> uh, well, Tom, in um, our introduction to you, I mentioned this new book that's coming out in October called Spider-Man Panel by Panel that you contributed to. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that book and that project? Uh, sure. It's I mean, it's not really my book. It's published by Abrams. It's really the work of Chip Kidd and very much like the Fantastic Four number one panel by panel they published uh, last year. It takes uh, Amazing Fantasy 15. Chip blows up and redesigns all of the panels to fill an enormous size so that you can scrutinize them uh, much more closely than you might have been able to otherwise. Uh, it also contains a, a number of historical essays about the making of Amazing Fantasy 15 and some behind-the-scenes stuff, some of which I contributed. You know, it's essentially the Amazing Fantasy 15 version of the, the FF1 book. So have you got your hands on a copy of this thing yet? Oh, no, 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 not, not at all, not at all. I haven't seen a, a frame from it. I'm not sure that it's it's all put together quite yet. Okay, cool. I mean, I, I mean, since you haven't, I mean, was there anything that you took, like the Fantastic Four book, was there any kind of like detail that like appeared to you through that kind of examination process? I mean, a little bit. Uh, you know, I had done years ago on my website I had done a fairly thorough walkthrough on Fantastic Four 1 uh, and 2 and 3. And I've, in years since, you know, done things like pull the Marvel in-house stats and study those up close and so forth. So, you know, really, uh, as much as anything, the material that was in the Fantastic Four panel-by-panel book was all sort of... Uh, reworked from pieces that I had written and posted years ago. So they were a little more polished. There's a couple of new tidbits in that book uh, versus the the version that's online. Uh, But it all kind of drew from that. And the Spider-Man book is kind of the same thing. I had done a couple of different pieces on the making of Amazing Fantasy 15. So I didn't have to do a whole lot of writing for this. It was more... Uh, rewriting and and reincorporating and and taking two or three different bits and combining them into a single piece. So again, I I I went into that story really close, and because the original art exists at the Smithsonian, uh, when that was first donated to Marvel or to uh, the Smithsonian years and years ago, uh, the Smithsonian reached out to Marvel and they provided us with incredibly high grade scans of all of those pages it's what we use today to reprint those stories um and i have copies of all of those files i saved them at the time and i downloaded them Uh, and they're you know they're as close to having the original art in my possession as it is possible to have Uh, and so i studied them up close i you know i ran them through photoshop and i adjusted the gains real high so you could start to make out you know, the pencil lines that were still on the boards that showed up in the scans and so forth. And so, you know, in these pieces, I was able to reconstruct little editorial notes that were in the margins and corrections and things. Uh, And that, 
indicates, you know, that, that, that gives some background on the making of this historic story. You know, but it's all stuff mostly that I had, had done before. In preparing the stuff for the for the book, you know, as happened with the FF one book, when I went back and looked at stuff again and came back to it fresh after a couple of years, I saw a few things either differently or that I hadn't seen the first time. So again, there's new material in in the book version versus the essays that are still available at the at the site. But it really is about as minute. Uh, I look at at that 11-page story as it's possible to have, for me at least, to have done. Somebody else might have been able to do a better job, but for some as good reason, as I could do it. I just had this vision of you like pulling a Nicolas Cage and breaking into the archives and uh, finding, <laughs> finding a map on the back of Amazing Fantasy 15. Uh, you know, but uh, <laughs> no map, but there was definitely some stuff hidden in it. And as we go through this, you know, I have the my uh, my copy of the essay opened here, so I'll refer to it uh, fairly regularly as uh, I don't remember all the minutiae of, of of this three or four years later. But there's some stuff that you wouldn't know from just looking at the printed comic. Tom, last time you were here, you told us about the first time you like discovered a Spider-Man comic and your kind of like loose collection at a various comic cons, uh, that pulled the whole thing together. But I'm curious, what was your first encounter with amazing fantasy 15? And like, what does it mean to you? I, I think my first encounter with amazing fantasy 15 was in origins of Marvel comics. I think that's the first time I read it. The second time I read it would have been in the, the 1970s pocketbook collections of, Amazing Spider-Man, the first volume, one through six, and Amazing Fantasy, uh, which I got second. I got the second volume first, seven through 13, and then sometime later, I, I ended up getting the, the first volume. So I read it in in uh, in Origins first. It, it you know it, It's a pretty impactful story uh, regardless, and it was already sort of historic at the time, in the, even you know, in the 70s uh, when that book was, was being published. You know, beyond that, I you know, I I guess I had the same sort of reaction to it as everybody. Spider-Man's got weird pupils on the last page. That's strange. <laughs> uh, and then you know, since then I've read it in a million different reprints and and collections and things. And you know, I have a copy of Amazing Fantasy 15, so I've I've I read it that way as as both of you have, I, I assume. Well, well, Tom. I, I mean, I'm always one to put people on the hot hot seat here. So I got I got to ask you, as kind of you know the, the Marvel resident Marvel historian here. I mean, you know, we're biased, but I mean, is this the greatest Marvel origin in your opinion? It's always difficult to quantify anything that specifically, but if it's if it's not, it's it's damn close. You know, it's 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 got to be in the top three, at least maybe the top two. And maybe it is just, you know, pound for pound, purely all, all around the, the best, you know, particularly given the, the length of it, particularly considering how well it still works today, 60 years later, you know, that that we've seen it reprised and redone in animation and on film and in every other format you could you could imagine in newspaper strips and 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 it it uh, it, it still functions. It still works with with very little change. You know, maybe Peter Parker's not wearing a, a weird 1950s sweater vest. Uh, you know, these these days when you when you tell this story, but the the essence of it works regardless of the age. 
and it's it's you know one of the things about it that I don't know if people really stop to consider is on a certain level it's almost like a parody of the Batman origin that that's the kind of story it starts out to be here's here's a a guy and he gets into this thing and his uh, parental figures are killed and so forth and it it follows that sort of parallel but goes in completely different directions from it he's not a rich guy he's a poor kid and he gets his powers and and wants to cash in on them as opposed to immediately becoming a world-renowned crime fighter and and so forth and so on like you can see the influence of particularly the classic batman that was very much a part of of steve ditko's upbringing and and was i think uh just a big influence on the kind of strip that spider-man was going to be well, we know this is spider-man's origin story you know that's the if there's one thing that people know about this comic you know, is there, are there other things that may stand out about it to you uh, in regard to its place in Marvel's publishing history? Well, I mean, really, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was, uh, you know, also the 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 first publication of that classic uh, fantasy story, The Bell Ringer. So, uh, you know, how, who who could who could who could forget that? Or the Man in the Mummy case uh, that we just did a the, we just did a sequel to yeah, in yeah, Amazing Fantasy say. a Thousand. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, really, the, 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 the reason people remember this comic and don't remember Amazing Adult Fantasy 14 is because of, of Spider-Man. Uh, it's it's all about Spider-Man. But that's what um, Disney Plus is for. Now we can get all of those stories out that... No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like the Martians walk among us. That, that that's, that's a favorite of mine. But uh, mm-hmm, I, I, mm-hmm. It, it just for Twilight zone goodness. But... Um, uh, okay, so- I, w- I will say one 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 thing to maybe think about, uh, and this is something that I think it was Greg Theakston who first uh, pointed this out in some article he'd written back in the '80s, uh, is that if you look at the cover to Amazing Fantasy 15 in the context of the 14 uh, issues that come before, it's not readily apparent that this is a superhero comic. Hmm. I mean, yes, we can look at Spider-Man now and recognize that what he is wearing is a superhero costume. But, you know, given that the the previous 14 issues included giant monsters and weird creatures and fantasy things, you could entirely look at that cover and go, he's some weird thing that's making off with this guy. Uh, His friends on the roof just want him back. (laughs) <laughs> he's 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 like another alien threat for all that it says you know introducing spider-man you know it, it's not as readily apparent in part because of that uh full face mask uh which just makes him look creepy and alien and if you don't know that's a full face mask if you haven't opened the comic and seen it that could just be the guy's face you know he's a weird thing uh, a monster an alien or whatever he's he's just a creepy a bug man especially mm. if they had left those dot pupils on him uh, <laughs> <laughs> now i want to photoshop that together Sp- speaking of details you know i think we should talk about what we're going to be doing here today so you know listeners of the show may have heard our episode with ron friends where we deconstructed 
the kid who collects uh, Spider-Man. But today we're going to be talking about deconstructing page by page Amazing Fantasy 15. So if you have a copy of it and you da- are daring enough to get it out or you have a reprint or you're even <laughs> break, got Marvel. Break the seal on your, on your CGC case. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and or, follow or along. You've got Marvel Unlimited, you know, break out your copy of Amazing Fantasy 15 and, and join us as we turn page by page. We're going to start with the cover and with each uh, page, we're going to give a description of what you could find there. If you don't have a copy of the comic or you just don't want to break that seal, uh, like Tom was saying. Um, and then Tom and, uh, and we are going to have a discussion about what's on the page and hopefully learn a little bit more about this comic that we, uh, all love. So let's get started, shall we? Um, and the no better place to start than with the cover, We're going to talk about the Kirby cover here. So the Kirby cover is marked with a date of August 1962. Amazing Fantasy 15 was sold for 12 cents and features a cover introducing Spider-Man, who we're told is actually the timid teenager Peter Parker. This strange red and blue costumed character heroically swings on a line, his chest puffed out with what appears to be a criminal under his arm. Speed lines emphasize the haste he is making as he rushes away from a building covered in an assortment of criminals who seem to have chased him to the rooftop, guns in hand. Um, I think it's important to note that there was also a uh, Steve Ditko alternate cover that wasn't used, but has subsequently been printed elsewhere. But we're going to start by talking about that Kirby, Kirby cover. Tom, what stands out to you? We talked a little bit about this cover. But looking at it now and looking maybe at the original inks, what what stands out to you about this cover? Well, I think you kind of do have to go back to the, the Ditko cover first. On Amazing Fantasy 15, the cover was produced after the story. It was the last thing that was done for this. This wasn't always the case. In a lot of cases on different Marvel uh, jobs, the cover came first. And often on a book that Jack Kirby did a cover for, he would design the villain of that story on the cover, particularly on titles where he wasn't drawing the interior. So on Iron Man cover for Tales of Suspense or something, he might design the villain that Don Heck would end up drawing on the interior. Um, But Ditko's pattern was always to do the cover last after the interior stories had been done. So the, the cover he did was the unused uh, cover to Amazing Fantasy. Uh, And it's got a couple of facets that are interesting to it. Uh, One is simply the fact that it wasn't used. It wasn't used at all, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, on the face of it maybe seems strange since uh, Spider-Man is so much a product of Steve Ditko's particular visual sensibility. Um, But the, the concern, as I understand it, from... Stan Lee and possibly Marvel's publisher, Martin Goodman, who tended to have a lot of opinions on the covers. He really didn't care about the stories. He felt the cover was what sold the magazine. And so you needed the grabbing cover and it needed to silhouette nicely and it needed to hit certain benchmarks. The the Ditko cover didn't seem impressive enough. Interestingly, you know, in the lettering for that cover, that original cover, there's a new logo that with this issue of Amazing Fantasy, the book up to this point since issue seven had been called Amazing Adult Fantasy. And every issue it featured five stories, short stories by uh, Stan and Steve Ditko that were kind of Twilight Zone-esque. 
uh, that you know Stan was trying to do something a little more sophisticated. Uh, hence the name adult in the title. And the sad reality is it didn't it didn't work. It didn't go over. It didn't sell that great. So the idea here was we're going to introduce Spider-Man as a character into the series. And, you know, that'll that'll hopefully be enough to save the title. Uh, it's why there's a blurb even on the Ditko cover saying, also in this issue, an important message for you about the new Amazing. Uh, and if you read the, ish- the actual issue, there is a text page that replaces the usual letters page where Stan, in, in his usual, not 100% truthful, but doing the doing the sell way kind of says, oh, you know, it's just it's just been too hard to to come up with all those those Twilight Zone type stories. So we're going to do Spider-Man instead for a while. And maybe if you like him, we'll do two Spider-Man stories every issue or, you know, we'll do longer stories, whatever it ends up being. This is what the comic is going to be from now on. Uh, and for years, the the legend and Stan perpetrated this because Stan loved a good story was that. You know, they only ran Spider-Man in the last issue of Amazing Fantasy because he had this crazy idea and his publisher didn't like it. And so they put it in because it was already canceled. That's all untrue. Uh, The 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 intention was for Spider-Man to be the lead in Amazing Fantasy moving forward. And in fact, the next two stories had been started and partially completed by the time they pulled the plug on it and those became the lead stories in amazing fantasy one and two um but anyway uh you know the other thing that's interesting about the ditko cover that we'll get to when we get to the splash page is there's a logo for spider-man on it uh it's that curved logo that's also on the splash page of amazing fantasy 15 uh and it includes the dash uh, and that's noteworthy in that Other than in this logo, at no point in this comic, including on the replacement Kirby cover, is that dash there. Spider-Man is consistently written as a single word. Uh, And, uh, you know, the inclusion of that dash was a relatively last-minute decision, it seems like, and a way of trying to distance the character from other other characters that... that, uh, yeah, there, 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 there might have been confusion or problems with. It was a way of trying to separate it and make it unique, uh, but it didn't really stabilize and become a regular thing until about Amazing Spider-Man Two, like in issue one, particularly in the story that was originally prepared for uh, Amazing Fantasy sixteen. It's still most often one word. Uh, it's inconsistent. They also so called the, him the, Peter the, Palmer in Spider-Man One. So <laughs> yes, a, so, but I, and, that point made. And part of the <laughs> part of the part of the reason for that mistake is that it had been eight months since Stan last wrote a Spider-Man story, and he, you know, he just forgot in that time. Yeah, I mean, he had the alliteration, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so the Kirby cover, you know, Jack was doing pretty much all of the covers for the superhero and fantasy and Western books at this time. So it is no surprise at all that Lee called him up and said, hey, we want you to do a cover for this Spider-Man launch. Uh, And it certainly looks to me like they either described to Jack or actually showed him the unused Ditko cover and Stan went, you know, Ditko did this cover, you know, it's a down shot. I don't like it. It's not dramatic enough. We need it to be powerful. We need it to be exciting. Uh, and Jack went away and did his version 
of the same image. Like the image of Amazing Fantasy, that cover that we, we re recognized, is ultimately based on the concept that Ditko came up with. It's just framed in a much more classically Jack Kirby sort of a fashion. Uh, the jutting diagonal buildings and the, the hero with his, his chest thrust out, like you say, and even the, the posture on the, on the dangling crook. In the original version of that cover, Ditko, or, uh, Kirby rather, had the web line that Spidey is swinging on go a lot further. It crosses in front of his body, uh, and they whited all of that out uh, to try and silhouette the character a little bit better. Um, you know, also, uh, there's a different set of lettering for Spider-Man on that cover. It's broken into two lines, but there still is no dash. It's still just Spider-Man. Uh, and most of the, the the coloring on it, you know, the cloud is the clouds of the sky, the streaks is Spidey and the the crook swing by. All of that was added after the fact in color. None of that was drawn by Kirby. So Tom, I'm I've always been curious about like these covers. You know, between the Dicko and the Kirby cover, I mean, you noted the differences in the like lettering for both the title and the you know the Spider Man name title with the hyphen is in the Dicko one, but not in the Kirby one, but the word balloons and the also in this issue message are the same. You know, is that just a function of them, you know, copying from one to the other and who would have done something like that? Well, the, the lettering on this cover was, was probably done by either uh, Art Simek or Sam Rosen, who were the two main letterers at Marvel at the time. And they definitely copied certain elements over into the new cover, the, the the next issue box and the two balloons, although they moved them around and changed the tails to make them work in the new image rather than in, in the old image. And that would have been a production thing. They would have statted that in the office and probably Saul Brodsky would have done the paste up to put them onto the new piece. They also did, for whatever reason, a new version of the Amazing Fantasy logo for the published cover, that there was a logo on the unused Ditko version, and that's not the ver version that was used here. It's also, in neither case, is it the version that was used on Amazing Adult Fantasy 14 the month earlier. So for whatever reason, when they looked at the, at the unused Ditko version, somebody, Stan or Martin Goodman or whatever, didn't like, wasn't happy with that logo, and they had it redone. Was that level of like tinkering common back then? I mean, it seems like a lot of emphasis on this one issue to completely redo a cover. The uh, the honest answer is, particularly on covers, there was always a ridiculous amount of tinkering. And if you go through the history of of uh, you know early Marvel, you know the first ten years, it's rare that you can't find a cover where something has been changed. And if you compare. Uh, the reprints that have been done over the years to the original published comics, you can often find small little changes and tweaks that were, were made, some of them bigger than others. Um, there were certainly instances where covers were tossed out completely and new covers were done to replace them because something about the original just wasn't working for Stan or for Goodman. You know, there are a couple of those on, uh, on Amazing Spider-Man, on the Amazing Spider-Man 10 cover, is a is mostly a Kirby cover, big Kirby Spider-Man with three little Ditko uh, enforcers and the big man. Uh, and we've seen like there's an unused Ditko Spider-Man 10 cover that just wasn't used. And presumably 
you know, there was some, there was some, whether it was real or not, there was some concern that that cover as it was put together was a problem or too difficult to read or too cluttered or whatever. And they went in and, and did that on other covers. Sometimes it would be a comics code thing. There are covers where characters Kirby coming at your hands would have like claws or extended fingernails. And the code would say, take the fingernails off. It's too scary for the kids. Or they would move an element away from the trade dress. There's a, a, an Avengers cover, Avengers 23, where Kirby's drawn it with a big hand up here of Kang. And they kind of shift the hand down because they need room for the, for the corner box. And, and uh, so, so this sort of minutia and picking at the, at the covers in particular uh, in this era, because it was all impulse buyers uh, and the, the feeling, the, the established wisdom of the time was the cover sold the comic. You know, you get a good cover, you grab the, the kids, they drop their dime and two pennies and, and you're golden. That was what was focused on more than any other aspect of the book and Stan even beyond the time of where, where Goodman was a real force really had that ingrained into him and was constantly looking and, and tweaking and adjusting stuff sometimes for no really good reason, other than maybe this will be a little better. Maybe this will make it a little stronger, you know, being a perfectionist uh, about the, the work that was being done. Uh, and it's difficult to measure how much of that made any difference at all. Um, certainly doing an entirely new cover it clearly is going to make some difference. You, you spoke a little bit about the archives. Yeah, I'm curious, maybe this just covers it in general. You know, there was the anonymous donor that dropped these original art pages off with the Smithsonian. You know, what was this Jack Kirby cover included in that? Or was the Steve Dicko original cover included in that? It's the whole, you know, typically the way original art books were filed, the original art was saved and in the Marvel warehouse, you would get the, the, the 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 entire original art for a book in an envelope altogether back from the printer and you would get the covers separately uh, and that's because the covers were printed differently it was on different paper it was done at a different time typically the covers were printed before the interiors and then the two were were uh, you know, stapled and married together so you didn't typically get the covers in the same package as the original art for the rest of the issue and when that stuff was returned and then haphazardly stored in the in the warehouse they just took those folders you know and put them on shelves and that was it and so you'd have all the covers somewhere and you'd have all the actual books somewhere else so the 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 library of congress does not have as far as i understand it either cover to amazing fantasy 15 but they do have all of the story pages and i think the editorial pages so the the editor's, uh, the editor's uh, note to the readers. I think they have the page for that. Uh, anything that was considered content would have been in that big manila envelope with uh, with all the original art. So does Marvel just have a scan of this Dicko unused cover that that like pull from? Like where was that discovered? The first place it was printed was as the back cover to an issue of Marvel Mania the fan magazine that was published in the sixties. Uh, and it was, it was printed in black and white. And I took up the whole of the back of this magazine sized uh, fan magazine. Uh, so it was good enough that you could reproduce off of it and, and uh, you know, uh, reprint it again later on. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't know specifically what source material we're using for it these days. I'm guessing it all goes back. It can all be tracked back to that printing because that's the best reproduction of it i think that it's it's ever gotten and it's nice and clean because it's in black and white 
but it's been printed a bunch of different times. It was the back cover to one of the Spider-Man indexes, and it's shown up, in, I think, in a couple of anniversary issues and things. And, and you know, they, they repurposed the art for a variant cover on Spider-Man 700. So, you know, clearly we have a decent reproduction copy of this lost cover, you know, good enough that we've been able to reprint it over the years. Well, let's turn the page to the uh, first page of the interiors. Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about what goes on in this first page? Yeah, of course. So this is the splash page, of course. And as, as Tom noted uh, earlier in the episode, we have the the original Ditko Spider-Man with a hyphen and an exclamation point logo at the top and a little Spider-Man guy to the right looking very Ditko-esque. Over to the left, we have a uh, group of kids, one of them pushing one out to the side who's standing out with a, with a silhouette behind him with a spider web and and a, an imposing figure kind of silhouette behind him the, in the narrator's box uh, in the top left of the page. We are introducing Spider-Man without the hyphen as something different from the quote unquote long underwear characters most are used to. And, you know, I'm thinking again of what Tom was just saying earlier in the episode about kind of the inversion of the, the traditional superhero story a la a Batman with what we got here. We learned that this this lonely, mocked and ostracized uh, student is Peter Parker. His classmates say he doesn't even know a cha-cha from a waltz and they are they are pushing him aside and Spider-Man you know is we 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 will learn later of course that the silhouette behind him is is Spider-Man and what he is to become but uh, that's spoiler alert I guess for a 60-year-old story. I always love this splash page. I mean, I think it just tells so much story in in one visual about what we're about to get into, but Tom would love to hear what 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 you think what, what you what you see in this page. Again, looking at the original art, there's a bunch of things. Uh, the first of which is there's a ton of white out up by where that uh, curved Spider-Man logo is. Uh, and the reason there's a ton of white out that when the, the library of Congress, when they first got the donation, you know, they looked over the, 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 the boards carefully. Uh, and that Spider-Man logo is a stat. It's the same lettering that was on the Ditko unused cover and you know the way you use a logo is you do it once and then you stat it, uh, which is you know photostatically reproduce it for each subsequent use. So that was dropped in here, uh, and so somebody at the Library of Congress kind of went in because the the paste that was on it keeping it together is old and peeled up the corner of it, and underneath it, it's apparent there was another Spider-Man logo. Uh, it's a Spider-Man logo that had no dash. It was all uh, done in these sort of weird webby lines. And there was a full web pattern that made up like a panel at the top of that central image of the splash page. So Spider-Man, that little tiny figure of Spider-Man, he's just not like sitting there in white space. He's at the center of a radiating web that goes out and that encompasses the logo. I am guessing, and it is only a guess, that they made this change because they wanted to introduce the dash. They, they wanted to make that, <laughs> that statement uh, and, and make it clear to help separate this, this character out from the other characters. Um, the other thing that's worth noting about this splash page is that uh, Liz Allen's face uh, was not drawn by Ditko. That was uh, that was art corrected. Uh, it was art corrected by Al Hartley, who was the artist on Patsy Walker. Uh, and this is clearly a case where Stan 
didn't feel that Ditko's forte was drawing cute, pretty girls. <laughs> uh, and so he got his cute, pretty girl artist on some day that he was in the office to just go in and, uh, you know, make her more cute as a button on this uh, splash page. And what about the uh, Peter standing in front of the wall? I mean, beyond like looking at the original printed art uh, or the original artwork before print, like does this page have any special meaning to you as an editor? You look at this page. What do your eyes see that maybe we're missing? Well, again, going back to the question of this being an inversion of a typical superhero strip. This is the kind of image that you would see a lot in 1940s Batman comics, where you'd have a figure, whether it was Bruce Wayne or a Batman figure, and they'd have the huge bat silhouette projected behind him. The idea of seeing the, the, the normal person and the superheroic alter ego uh, as, a, as a motif was kind of something that was already established here. So this is playing with those conventions, except the guy that we're looking at you know, isn't a, a millionaire playboy or a well-to-do reporter or whatever. He's this sort of schlubby guy, you know, on on this high school campus who's already separated and ostracized from his entire social peer group. You know, in, in essence, this kind of gets across the sense of who Peter Parker is, which which is good and which is important for a reason we'll talk about in a page. And people have made a lot of like Peter's looks as being similar to that of Steve Ditko. Have you, do you buy into that kind of like self insert idea? Um, I think, I don't know that, that, that Ditko at this point was drawing Peter Parker necessarily as a self caricature or anything, but I think that like all artists, he drew on his own, his own background uh, and his own experiences. I don't know that Ditko thought of himself as a nebbishy science-minded high school student. <laughs> but, you know, some of the some of the clear iconography of that is Peter wears glasses in all those early stories, which was always a shorthand for he's a he's a brainiac. He's a he's a he's a he's a he's a smart nebbishy kid. Uh, and even the, you know, the clothes, the the sort of standard Peter Parker you know, sweater vest and tie and 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 button-down shirt. Um, you know, this comic was released in 1962, but it feels more like something that a kid in high school might have been wearing in the 50s or earlier. And that really feels like a throwback to, to Ditko as well. You know, that having been said, if you look at photos of Ditko, there are a couple floating around online from his high school yearbook and so forth. He does look remarkably like the early Peter Parker. He had, uh, you know, a, a short, well-groomed haircut. He wore uh, glasses and, uh, you know, he was not like physically buff. He was a relatively small guy. So there's definitely, you know, even if it was just him looking in, in the mirror to get expressions right or whatever, there's definitely a connection between who Steve Ditko was and who Peter Parker is. One of, one of my big takeaways always from this page that I, that you know, always kind of calls to me is how when you look at Flash's hand, I mean, he's literally pushing out against Peter to the side. I mean, you know, you, you talk about there being an outcast. I mean, he's pushing him out of the circle. I guess in retrospect, is this is this considered too on the nose? I mean, could you know, if, if we do this today, are we like, oh, <laughs> come on, how obvious can you be? I mean, like, or or is this still consider pretty pretty good storytelling from a from a visual standpoint <laughs> um i again i think it's pretty good in that you don't need a single word to understand this image like if you took all the balloons and the copy off of this and just showed somebody that image 
they would be able to tell you and describe to you what is going on there with crystal clarity. The comic book artists of this period, Kirby in particular, uh, and uh, Ditko as well, and you know all of their uh, contemporaries, uh, tended to uh, use what I think of as theater acting in their in their characters, uh, which is to say they would exaggerate movement and motion and stance so as to communicate to in theater the back of the audience <laughs> or you know in, in comics visually and clearly to an audience who particularly in 1962 the common wisdom was was pretty young and maybe couldn't read that well so so the visual component really had to carry the day um, you had to make an image here that conveyed to even your youngest reader what the situation is even if they can't understand all the big words like long underwear character. And I've, I've always been drawn to the signatures of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko down at the bottom of the page. You know, there's, you know, a lot of these early books didn't always credit the people working on them for the work that they did, but like their, their names are, you know, right down there standing out, you know, it, it always pleased me to see like, and also knowing that it was, looks like it's actually their signatures unless it Dicko was doing his best Stan Lee signing. I think it's the other, I think it's the other way around having looked at it. That's definitely Stan's handwriting and his, his sort of stylized signature with the combined ST and Stan. Uh, and I think the S Ditko was probably done by him as well. Uh, Stan tended to in these days and for most of his career to sign any story that he himself worked on. It's one of the clues that you can look at if you're looking at stories from the 40s or 50s or 60s to try and figure out which ones were genuinely written by Stan and which ones were written by some other, you know, of, of a bevy of, of uh, faceless, you know, almost forgotten creators. Stan tended to sign the stuff that he did, uh, sometimes by himself, sometimes with the, the, the artist, uh, you know, he would sign with Dan DiCarlo often on the girl strips and and uh, with Joe Manili on occasion on the Westerns and things. And so this was sort of par for the course. And Fantastic Four at this point, before they'd developed actual credit boxes, those would be signed Stan Lee and Jay Kirby. Uh, and the same thing, just, you know, written in. Well, let's move on to page two. So everybody turn the page. And be careful not to damage it in any way. Uh, so on, I'm like having a nervous uh, breakdown here, just telling people to turn a page. Page two, Peter is awakened by Uncle Ben and fed wheat cakes from his loving Aunt May. At school, we see Peter's successes in the science classroom and failures at courting women. His invitation to a science exhibit is rebuked by the big man on campus, Flash Thompson. As his peers drive away and Peter approaches the science exhibit, he thinks about how sorry they will all be someday. So we're getting to our first truly like nine panel heavy. I guess it's really eight panels here, but like we're, we've moved past the splash page. We're into the meat of the issue. We got Stan's dialogue just drowning this thing in a wonderful way. Tom, what stands out to you about this first page? Well, I tell you, the biggest surprise that the original art shows us is at the bottom of this page, uh, written in like grease pencil across the bottom, is an instruction. Bill, shoot this page too. Give to Stripper, which would have been the, the film stripper that was putting the book together. That appears to be a, a note that was made at the printer, but it opens up a whole can of worms. Because why would you not have this page in the book? Was it added after the fact? 
late in the game, if you look at the story and you take this page out, it still works. Like you can go from that splash page immediately to Peter is at the radiation exhibit. Uh, and all you've really lost is a bunch of characterization. That characterization is, is important, but it's entirely possible, uh, although maybe not likely, that this page wasn't intended <laughs> uh, to be there when Ditko brought the first version of this story in, and it was added sometime later in the process. It's also possible that somebody at the plant just misplaced this page for a while and realized <laughs> it was there and went, crap, we got to get that into that book. Yeah. To give it to Bill. Get it to Bill. So, so, so I don't know. You know. All I can point to is that note, but it sure is interesting as a thing. There's also a couple of little changes that are that are important here. There is a border note from Stan to Steve. Typically, the way they would work in these days is, uh, you know, they would talk over a story. Ditko would go back to his studio, pencil the story, bring it in. He would go over it panel by panel with Stan. Uh, and Stan would would uh, you know suggest changes or, or ask for things. They weren't always written on the boards because these guys would talk to one another. But in this case, a bunch of them were. Uh, and here there is a note instructing Steve in the second panel that says, "Steve, change to wheat cakes." So what this means is that as originally drawn. Aunt May was serving something else for breakfast beyond wheat cakes. And this moment changed the entire history <laughs> of, of comics as wheat cakes are indelibly now associated with the origin of Spider-Man. Why did they change it? What was it originally? What what foodstuff could Aunt May have been serving that morning? <laughs> I don't know. There's not enough evidence there to tell. But for, for now and forevermore, it's going to be wheat cakes. There's also some very minor lettering corrections in uh, in panel one, two, three, four, five, six, four. Panel four, uh, where Pete asks Sally for the date, and she tells him for the umpteenth time, no, umpteenth was was uh, a change. That originally there was a different word there, probably for uh, probably just a different number. You know, for the last time or for the seventh time or whatever, and and Stan changed it because umpteenth is funnier. Also in panel five, you know, that's that's Sally cozying up to Flash Thompson, but it sure looks a lot like what Betty Brant would look like about a year later. So that was a very you know, very typical Ditko character design. Uh, she's got Betty's short curly haircut that she had at the beginning, and you know, if you pull just that that face out, she looks like Betty Brant. My favorite design on this page is Flash Thompson with a big T on his. Uh, I was just about to say, I because mean, is, that the, is that the style at the time? Is that like wearing an onion on your belt or something, or what? I mean, <laughs> it was uh, it was it was T for Midtown High, oh, okay. of course. <laughs> <laughs> this is the equivalent of um, of wearing a uh, the rock concert shirt or the band shirt to the rock concert, but we all know rock. Uh, uh, Flash is always throwing a rock concert for himself. Yeah, and I think this is more a throwback to an earlier period. Like, if you look at the Archie comics of this period and the periods right before, like, you know, uh, Reggie and Jughead and even Archie are often wearing sweaters or sweater vests that have a, a letter on it, the R for Riverdale or the M for Mantle or, 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 or whatever. Uh, and that was, I think, a throwback to the way high school kids dressed in the 40s. So uh, Flash is a little old for, for his age uh, here in 1962, rocking his strange, I don't know what it stands for, T-shirt. Everybody in this story is sort of 
attired in a way that's a little bit older than the year in which it was published. We've also got the introduction of Aunt May and Uncle Ben. There's an earlier issue, I believe, of Amazing Fantasy where like two characters named Aunt May and Uncle Ben show up. Do you do you believe that this is just kind of like a, I can reuse those names and no one will notice kind of thing? Well, it's it's not even so much no one will notice. That was an issue of Strange Tales. It was Strange Tales '97. Uh, I wrote about the, the that story as well. Yeah, you know, these were names that Stan liked and and used a lot. You know, Spider-Man has an Uncle Ben. The Rawhide Kid has an Uncle Ben. Both of them are killed. Coincidence or pattern? <laughs> Serial killer? Who can say? But, um, you know, these were things and these were sort of types. And if you look at them in that story, that Uncle Ben has a mustache, although in recent reprintings, they've tended to color over it to make him look more like it's not. And that Aunt May was just another sort of, you know, elderly, you know, 60s going on the grave woman so these were just kind of character you know characters and types the names weren't necessarily important and even here i think you know while they knew spider-man was going to be a strip you know nobody was attaching any particular importance to this he you know he's got he's got these relatives uncle ben and aunt may you know ben Grimm is in the fantastic four introduced only six seven eight months before these were names that for whatever reason stan liked the the sound of and would use over and over again also those wheat cakes must be pretty great because it looks like uncle ben gains about 50 pounds between panel one and panel two <laughs> he is super he is super gaunt in that first panel and by panel two he's more the the huskier uh, guy that we tend to recognize as uncle ben there so so the wheat cakes or whatever Aunt May secretly prepared before the art change, they they did the trick. She she knows her stuff around the I kitchen. I mean, there might have just been some whey protein so he could out-wrestle Peter finally, because clearly he was concerned about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm now imagining a, a big blockbuster movie with Peter and the Rawhide Kid where they're fighting and they both realize <laughs> that they have aunts and uncles named May and Ben and decide... Forever truce. All right, let's move on to page three. Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about that page? Peter uh, here is attending that demonstration of uh, where he's seeing the radioactive rays zapping a spider. And then immediately after this experiment, uh, he's gripping his hand in pain because the spider has bitten him as it glows and then dies off. Uh, actually, it goes off to bite Cindy Moon, but that's another story. Peter immediately feels faint and leaves the exhibit. He gets outside and feels like his whole body has, quote unquote, been charged with some kind of energy. Uh, we even get the big, uh, scary, uh, amazing adult fantasy hands going with it. He then suddenly <laughs> leaps out of the way of an oncoming car towards the side of a nearby building. So it's it's eight panels, lots happening here, lots of dialogue, lots of lots of action. Tom, what 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 don't we know about here? Well, a couple of things. In panel six, the third panel in the middle tier where Peter is reacting to having been bitten. Uh, and you can still see uh, on the original art, if you zoom in closely enough and pop the gain up far enough, there's still enough pencil there. Uh, there's a note in the border from Stan saying, Steve, remove spider, change position of hand. You know, Peter's got his right hand up to his head, but he originally had his left hand still in the shot, still upraised, uh, and still holding the spider. And they, they took that out. Um, also, in the last panel on this page, when Ditko originally drew it, that car was a convertible, and there was a guy reaching out and 
just dating. Uh, and there's a note there from Stan that says, Steve, make this a covered sedan. No arms hanging out. Don't imply wild, reckless driving. It, was that a particular concern of Steve's or Stan's? <laughs> uh, well, again, you never knew what the comics code was going to object to. You know, particularly anything that was duplicable behavior. And so, again, like, I don't know that this was the most important thing in the world. And I don't know that it's anything that they thought terribly deeply about. This was just part of the process. Did go broad in the page. Stan said, that looks, you know, dangerous. Like they're on a weird joyride or something. They should just be ordinary people. And Peter happens to wander out in front of them and he jumps out of the out of the way. You know, it's not meant to imply that they're doing anything wrong. The person at fault here is Peter for having sort of heedlessly stumbled out of the place and into the road without looking. So, you know, they 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 changed it for the final page. Yeah. I, I mean, I actually, I buy that change. I mean, I feel like it kind of lends itself more to the the surprise element, at least from Peter. Like, you know, like he was just kind of daydreaming and like, oh, I got to jump. I mean, you know, like, for, you know, kind of like what we saw in what we see in the movies when they kind of manifest this scene. Yeah. Panel panel seven to me. Every time I look at it, always reads like Peter's stomach is honking at him. <laughs> that he's 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 desperate he's desperately hungry or something because uh, those those horn sounds don't really read like they're coming from some I don't know where I would have put them to make them read better that there's a car coming at him, but they they just seem to radiate from his from his stomach. So more weak case. Uh, I mean, you know, like it's. it's- <laughs> It's been a page. <laughs> Got to get back to Queens. Don't tell Dan Slot about that. He'll invent some universe where Spider-Man's powers are that his stomach honks. Uh, you know, that's, that, that'll be the next thing we get. All right, great. I, I, I've always loved this page, and I uh, specifically panels three and four, the kind of inversion of the, the inks there with the, the kind of sell us on the shock of the spider and the kind of singling out of Peter from the crowd. Those ones have always been very striking to me. Um, you know, not to mention the abnormally sized hands that are found throughout. It's, it's also a, 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 a patently ridiculous sequence. And, and, and you can tell by how often you know, people who have either retold it or adapted it for other media have had to kind of explain this. They've got a, a huge cyclotron uh, projecting radioactive rays safely uh, without, without any enclosure, without you know, so, so open that a spider can just drop down from the ceiling, get into it, and then jump onto a guy who happens to be in the crowd. It's very much like the 1962 version of radioactivity in, in the Marvel comics of that period, which were all very much developed, you know, during that cold war era and under the constant specter of, of uh, the atomic bomb, you know, they, they kind of used radioactivity as magic. Anytime they needed some fantastic thing to happen, it would always be radioactivity. And so here it's, you know, pretty much the spider crawls into a bunch of magic and then magics to Peter Parker to make him magic. 60 Spider-Man comics might, or, or just Marvel comics in general might as well be a PSA for reckless science. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to page four, everybody. So page four, you know, Peter climbs the wall of a building with his bare hands after narrowly avoiding the car. He crutches a steel pipe as though it were paper. He walks or crawls effortlessly down a thin cable and ultimately concludes, as you would, that somehow (laughs) the spider bite transferred its powers to him. 
Seeking a way to test his powers, Peter discovers a contest to stay in a wrestling ring with a muscular Crusher Hogan and decides he'll enter, but only with a disguise, lest he fail and be humiliated. Tom, what don't we know about this page? Well, just casually, since you bring it up here, you know, Hogan is another one of those names that that Stan liked a lot and used a lot. Happy Hogan is probably the longest gestating version of that. But there are any number of earlier one-off fantasy stories and weird stories or Westerns even that people would often fight, you know, Killer Hogan or, or whatever. It was a name that sounded good. So Crusher Hogan is that. There's not that much on this page that that's not obvious in the original art. There is a note from Stan about panel five, which says, Steve, make this a gloomy back alley so no one can see him as he you know, traverses that line. I guess you know, maybe in the pencils, that uh, building that Peter is descending from was not a silhouette, was open. And you might think, oh, maybe if somebody was in those buildings, they'd see this kid rappling down on the line and be able to realize that he was Spider-Man. There's also some really nice, very simple, very basic cartooning and acting on this page. Um, I think the figure of, of Peter getting to the top of the building and crushing the, the pipe in panel three is really nicely done. I think the composition of panel two, that upshot with the tiny little Peter silhouette in the distance and that uh, you know weird kid who, uh, at least in one one retelling, gets smacked for telling his mom she he sees a guy climbing up the wall. That's wonderfully framed. Uh, and the sixth panel is sort of quintessentially Ditko as well, with the sort of heavily shadowed Peter, you know, walking off into the distance with the spider web and the spider in the in the foreground, you know, encompassing him and almost enveloping him like fate or or destiny. Uh, again, this is still relatively proto Ditko in terms of doing superhero stuff, but his storytelling and design chops are, are right on point. I do find it interesting from a, the Twilight Zone kind of point of view here that, you know, and as and again, as an aversion of superhero comics that, you know, his first his first choice when he has these powers and he recognizes he has these powers is how can I make money with them? I mean, you know, I don't think you've you probably saw that before in a superhero comic until here. No, no, definitely not. And again, this really this story really owes a lot of itself, as you say, to those one-off fantasy stories that these guys were doing in a very real way this could have just been another issue of amazing adult fantasy it's just that the kid doesn't become a superhero he becomes whatever he wanders off into the night at the end and there is no follow-up story it's a one-off story uh it definitely trades on that sort of uh res- uh recurring theme of somebody who lucks into some power and ability and misuses it and gets their comeuppance by the end in a ironic twist of fate um so it's using all of those tools and all of those dramatic structures that they had developed over years doing fantasy stories just for a continuing character and in a superhero style context for the first time i've always wondered the implication of the final panel with peter leaving his glasses behind you know was he fighting Mm -hmm. crusher blind in some way or (laughs) were the glasses only ever just a fashion statement for, for Peter in, in, in some way. Cause we know, um, I don't know. I I always, I always assume that the glasses are, were, were, were real and that his vision did clear up after getting bitten by the spider in the sense of everything else. It is, you know, uh, symbolically sort of like I'm leaving my current identity behind and and becoming this new person or this new persona. Um, Some of it is just practical. You can't put the glasses on 
under or over that mask and take them into a wrestling ring, you know, you're going to, you're going to bust them. So, so some of that is, is just that how he gets from the house to the wrestling field in that costume <laughs> without any glasses is a, is a really good question. And I don't have an answer. I see him on the, on the, on the, you know, on the long Island railroad coming in from Queens strap hanging, wearing his, bandana mask and his his you know, old overalls or whatever going what stop is this <laughs> um, but you know it's uh, again it's all part and parcel i will say that that panel too of of peter kind of shrugging on the big oversized sweatsuit again some really nice you know character acting there for all that it's a still panel you really get the sense of him shucking this thing on and his face immediately looks more heroic. I mean, you start getting the kind of like Superman, like curl in, in the in the hair there that uh, isn't present anywhere else where he has like the kind of widow's peak. Maybe you can clear this up for me and, and maybe not. I'm curious. In the 1967 cartoon, there's an additional sequence during this part of the story where Peter fights a bunch of like thugs or bullies that then shows up again in later retelling of this in, during one of the anniversary stories. And like, there's no room for it, but it's just a strange addition that showed up there and was later kind of added in, in a kind of slightly elongated version of this tale. Do you know any history behind that sequence or? Um, I know the first place it showed up was in the retelling of the first real retelling of Spider-Man's full origin, which was in the first issue of the black and white magazine, spectacular Spider-Man in, I think that was 1968. And that was Stan and Larry Lieber. And uh, I, I don't think Johnny inked it. I think maybe Jim Mooney or somebody inked it. John was busy working on the lead story. Uh, and it was taking effectively this 11 page story and expanding it to, I don't remember how many pages it was, 12 or 15. Uh, and and changing it up to make it more in line with what Spider-Man was at that point. So I think that that's simply Stan coming up with another bit of business to help flesh out the story or Larry when he was drawing it, you know, so, so Peter doesn't immediately segue from he's out in the world and he goes home. He has this encounter, you know, with these goons on the street. And I think he swings and breaks a lamppost with them. Yeah. So clearly they're going to have no idea that he's Spider-Man, but you know, it's another bit of color, another bit of business. And maybe there was a concern that, Oh, it's too many pages of guys just standing around. We need some action here. Uh, in a way that they weren't as concerned about that here, because that hadn't really become the formula yet. This is really paced and framed like one of those fantasy stories rather than a superhero story. Uh, and then it got adapted that way. They used that version of the Spider-Man origin as the basis for the the uh, 67 cartoon episode that adapted the origin, which I think also uh, first aired in 68 or maybe 69, that particular episode. Uh, and so that was all taken from that that backup story. So presumably when Ralph Bakshi or whomever said, hey, we want to do the origin of Spider-Man and they gave them reference on it, it was that story, which was contemporary and fresh that they gave them, not Amazing Fantasy 15. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clearing that up for me. Mark, do you want to turn the page to page five? So now we see Peter approaching Crusher Hogan with dreams of winning that prize money. He's elusive, dodging all of Crusher's attacks and then jumping over him. Peter realizes at this moment that he indeed has the proportionate speed and strength of a spider. Crusher believes someone who moves like him, quote, can't be human. 
Meanwhile, a gentleman looks on, overhearing other spectators talk about this being the greatest act they've ever seen. And this man thinks to himself that this is the quote unquote character that he has been looking for. Tom, what, 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 what do we got here that might not be uh, seen by the naked eye? Well, on the original art in the last panel, it is clear that uh, the second balloon that's that's in that panel, the one talking about sensational, fantastic, uh, that was originally lettered at the upper right and was going to Maxi, the agent. Uh, and they decided at some point whether I can't tell from this and from what's here, whether that was just a mistake that Art Simic met made when he was lettering this, like he thought it was the, that guy's balloon and realized, oh, no, there's a third balloon that goes to that guy. I got to move it. Um, but that balloon gets whited out and the replacement balloon where Maxie's thinking about, that's the guy, the kind of guy I've been looking for, you know, that's, that's lettered over top of it. Also super minor thing, but in the, in the, you know, on the art, you can see in the pencils that in panel four, uh, there were a couple of lines in the background there denoting, uh, you know, like the back and side of the wrestling ring that Ditko just left out, chose not to add in. Uh, when he was inking and finalizing that panel, simplifying the composition so it's a little easier to follow. Mm. That's such a great panel, though. I mean, it's such a it's such clean action. <laughs> yeah, I like I like the very simplified face yeah. on Crusher Hogan in all of these panels. He really has no neck at all in panel one. <laughs> but he's got that he's got that delightful cherubic smiling face, uh, and 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 weird Ditko proportions in panel two like he's just he's he's built oddly and 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 sort of scarecrowly but again there's some some some, some nice vibe here and the the you know the little makeshift mask that peter wears is kind of fun and so like this is a yeah again it's a classic sequence for a reason it really all just sort of works i mean and even the introduction of maxi like in that panel if you're just looking at the visuals with his you know pork pie hat and his big cigar you can look at that guy and go he's an agent yep. <laughs> he's 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 an agent he's, he's a star he's gonna is sign born. Up. <laughs> right you know but you just you just get it like everybody is a type here uh, and you can look at even even just like the other people that are in the crowd at the wrestling ring. And there's a guy in a hat and a guy in like a, an old school cap and another guy with a cigarette. And like they immediately become personalities. They're not just they're generic people, but they're not generic. Like Dicko hasn't just drawn four of the same face. He's drawn a whole bunch of different guys that all have some little bit of personality to them that make them a little more distinguished than just a bunch of random heads in the background. Can I ask about the, uh, the mask itself? I mean, it, it, the hatching on it looks like it's a different kind of like, it's not as dark as the other inks on the page. You know, is that still just pencil that has been scanned darkly on there or no, no, that's just, that's just line control. It's just a thinner, slimmer line. Ditko is good enough, you know, at his, his line control. It may be too, that, you know, most of this looks like it was inked with a brush and he may have done those web, those, uh, they're not quite web lines, those hatch lines with a, with a pen to get a finer, uh, more controlled line on them. But looking at the original art, you know, those are equally dark, equally India ink as everything else around it. I don't just think they weren't done with a brush. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like a, it almost seems like a more modern kind of like pattern you would cut out and put on there than like a, like a, like a, fine you know thing but uh, yeah i totally believe you 
All right, Dan, let's take a quick pause here, uh, regrettably, uh, so we can talk about one of our favorite things, the Slack. Hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Dan, even I was there about a week ago, but I was there. I did it. I was thrilled to see you, Mark, and I, I hope you come back soon because it's a really great place. Great. Great. I, I know everybody was thrilled to see you there. Um, this week's been fun because we've been talking about all the D23 announcements. Um, we got a couple of like new trailers and and things. Uh, I'm really excited about Werewolf by Night just because it looks like something really different from Marvel. Um, a little bit less thrilled with the Thunderbolts lineup in that it's just like a who's who of super soldiers. But um, maybe there's a couple of like, you know, aces up their sleeve. They're trying to keep hidden. But yeah, I don't know. Mark, did you watch any of the D23 stuff? I just saw the announcements via Twitter. I, I didn't see the actual. I mean, I saw some of the trailers and stuff, but I didn't like watch like the live stream or anything. But uh, yeah, I, I'm 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 with you on the Thunderbolts. Uh, I was excited about the Secret Invasion trailer. Uh, I, I, too, am intrigued by Werewolf by Night. Um, so, yeah, you know, like content, 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 Dan, whether you like it or not, it's coming. <laughs> Yeah, well, the uh, emphasis on on like it or not. So, uh, yeah, if you want to join our awesome Spider-Man community, you can just follow the link in the description to this episode and be sure to say hi. We get a bunch of people that like ghost join and they never say anything. And I'm like, okay, you went through all the steps of joining. Like, who are you? And it makes me a little paranoid because, you know, after the whole Norman Osborn incident, I'm like extra cautious about people engaging with me silently on social media. But yeah, come on and say hi. And um, you can even let us know what you thought of this episode with Tom Brevoort. We're having a blast recording it. We hope you guys enjoyed as much as uh, we do making it. All right, let's move on to page six. Page six, Peter is approached by the TV producer who offers a book, offers to book him on the Ed Sullivan show. Back home, Peter designs his own Spider-Man costume and web shooters, which we see for the very first time, excluding that little figure uh, up at the top of uh, page one. Fully suited, he tests them out and pulls himself up to cling to the ceiling of his room. Determined as ever, Peter announces that the world is about to meet Spider-Man. What don't we know about this page? Um, not too much. I mean, the one big observation here is Spider-Man is still one word. And uh, apparently, uh, when Ditko created the costume, uh, his sense of the color scheme for it, he wanted it to be, in essence, orange and purple. Uh, and in fact, in the early Spider-Man comics, those blue areas are more often colored in a dark blue verging on purple. If you look at the original printing of Amazing Fantasy 15, as opposed to a lot of the reprintings that have tended to skew it more blue because those historically are what Spider-Man's uh, colors are. Um, those, the, you know, the dark areas, the purple areas are really supposed to be black. You know, Ditko is doing them as a, as a shiny black. And you can see in a bunch of the panels on this page, they're full on black. Like they're completely full or almost completely full, except for maybe a little bit of edge lighting. Um, some later creators like Eric Larson would almost always do the 
the, the these areas uh, solid black when he was drawing uh, Spider-Man. Um, so so that costume was meant to be orange and black rather than red and blue. Any insights on the fact that we have we get the web wings, obviously. Now, the original Dicko cover doesn't have the web wings and that was done after. Right. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious where that's all coming from. Because obviously, the Kirby one had it. But, you know, some of that is just practicality. And you can see it, you know, in the in the issues that Ditko does. You know, he keeps the, the underarm webbing there relatively consistently, but not all the time, in part because it gets in the way. Uh, you know, the, the, both of those covers involve both carrying a guy under your arm, right. which <laughs> is definitely going to get in the way of, of, of that underarm webbing. And then on the Ditko one, he's got his other arm almost straight up as they're swinging. And so trying to even figure out what that would look like, like that web. Uh, underarm web pattern would be stretched so vertically. Like, what would you even see? I think it would just be distracting there. It is one of those those classic Spider-Man elements that it doesn't make a whit of sense, <laughs> uh, and it couldn't and it couldn't possibly work the way it's depicted here. But it looks cool, and you know, I prefer the Spider-Man uh, design with with the underarm webs to to not. But I understand why they often get dropped. It's just they're they're not at all practical. I also love the idea that that uh, uh, Peter Parker's webbing has some some like strong rubber cement on the end of it, so he can he can pull himself up. <laughs> <laughs> and those and those early like web shooters look like he's got like you know rubber tennis balls or something on his on his palms. Like they're all these are all very uh, crude. Yeah, I, I was always taken by two panels on this page. The first one being panel number two with uh, uncle Ben and aunt may, if only because like secret identity is not really a strong feature of, of this issue. Um, there's not really a reason for him to hide from this, from his parents or aunt and uncle. Not really yet. The way that it's drawn his back turned to them and him kind of almost secreting this mask to me is like almost an early Genesis uh, of that idea. Well, definitely. I mean, it's it's a it's a complete contrivance, and it's one that, again, most other adaptations have had to find their way to work around. Because the reason it works here is you immediately cut from you know Peter in the wrestling costume to Peter at home secretly making this thing to then later in the story Peter going out and appearing on pub in public on television and so forth. And there is literally no reason in the world he should not tell his parents and guardians what has happened to him and where he's going, except by the end of the story, he's going to be a superhero. So he can't, uh, and, and Stan and Steve just dodge around that by, by not letting you stare at it too much. Also, aunt may has apparently been eating the wheat cakes herself <laughs> because she is, she is much stockier here and, and seems much more youthful than she was only a couple of pages ago. <laughs> this isn't Those an Aunt May who has good. a heart attack every other page. <laughs> no, she's, a, she's an Aunt May who gives a heart attack. She's constantly giving people food. Here, have, have some crackers. Have some milk. Have some wheat cakes. Eat. Eat, boy. Eat. <laughs> And then panel four is it was always been interesting to me for Peter's kind of like wicked smile. You've got this kind of like more friendly, heroic looking Peter on panel two presenting himself to his you know aunt and uncle. But then there's this kind of like wicked devilish joy on panel four that I've always particularly enjoyed. Yeah, I like the way that the two intersecting uh, web lines 
become like a little tiny little little uh, web. Like they've got connections in between them. They're not just like two strings that cross in an X. That somehow they they become a, a more complex web at the point in which they intersect. Uh, again, doesn't make a whit of sense in real life, but it looks cool. And if it looks cool, it is cool. Uh, Mark, uh, why don't you tell us about page seven, also known as page eight? In page eight, this is the first page of part two. Spider-Man, still no hyphen, is performing for the cameras on the Ed Sullivan show. The cameraman and the studio crew are looking on and they are gobsmacked, completely amazed by what they're seeing and perhaps also a little terrified, uh, some of the audience at least. Uh, Spider-Man uses his web shooters to spin a web for the audience doing these like little parlor tricks. Uh, The producer tells him to save some of his tricks for a future show and leave them wanting more. To answer your, your, your first question about page eight, yes, in the original art, Outside of the board, you know, this is numbered as page eight, whereas the previous page was page six. And the reason for that is those are not actual page numbers. Those are what we call lineup numbers. Uh, And what that means is when you're putting together a comic book or a magazine, you must account for every page. And that includes the pages that have advertising on them. So the page between that previous page and this first part of chapter two uh, was an ad. And you can confirm that by looking at an actual copy of Amazing Fantasy 15. Oh, let me just get um, my so those... two extras over here. No. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's, I mean, again, it's it's one of those things that, that, that people have uh, asked about frequently when looking at copies of the original art, but that's why it's the way it is. Uh, you know, there's just, there's an ad in between uh, those two. Interestingly, at least to me, in this first appearance, the spider symbol on Spider-Man's back is colored blue in this original story and not red. And in fact, look at the original art, the way Ditko does it is he leaves just a circle on the back and then goes in with some white out and draws the legs and the little head at the, at the top of it uh, separately. That's very clear if you're looking at the original art. Uh, and in panel three in the pencils, there's a bunch of erased attempts by Ditko to get Spider-Man's left hand into just the right weird position to be zapping that web line across. Um, so he was still, you know, trial and erroring his way through uh, how to how to make that work. And you can see he drew it two or three times before settling on the one he actually inked. Uh, also, for you know, to, to no great surprise, at the top of the board, uh, written in Ditko's handwriting, although it's been largely erased now, uh, it says, Amazing 15, Spider-Man, all one word, part two, Ditko. So, you know, he's just labeling his page, but, uh, you know, it's definitely the start of part two. I, I've always appreciated, like, the kind of, like, how how much we just jump straight into Spider-Man doing really weird poses as this character. And it, it, it makes him very distinct, I think. And, you know, uh, I, th- I think it shows great care from Ditko that he was trying to do something unusual with this guy. For, for sure. Although there's no question in that splash page, Spider-Man's right leg is completely broken at the knee. <laughs> <laughs> like a human, a human leg does not turn that way at the at the knee. Yeah. Regardless of how spidery you might you might be, <laughs> and I suspect, again, just looking at that figure, I suspect that he adjusted it that way so as to not crop it at the at the top 
because, you know, to give the impression of a guy sticking to the wall, you want to see the whole of the figure in the image and not have any part extend beyond the border because maybe he's hanging up on something. Maybe there's something holding him up. You know, you can you can imagine that that the situation is different, but that's a weird looking position for that leg, especially when you look at it up close. It is exactly what Ditko drew. He, nobody you know, funked with it or changed it after the fact, you know, it's odd. Uh, and so, yeah, this is really the first quintessential Spider-Man pose that you can't really duplicate in real life with your action figures or God forbid your human body. Can I ask you, there is um, in both the print and original art, there is this uh, number and letter combo of V-789. Do you know what that yep. is? Yes, I do. That is a job number. Uh, and what that is, is uh, because uh, all of these books, even before the superhero days, they were mostly anthology titles and they mostly had multiple stories in each title. So even if you had an issue of Patsy Walker in the average Patsy Walker issue, you would get two or three or four Patsy Walker stories, or maybe one of them would be you know, dedicated to Chili, her rival or whatever. The way they dealt with accounting, on these uh, things and kept track of all the stories and where they were is every story when it was started was assigned a job number. Uh, and at this point, we're in the middle of the V series. They went from V001 to V999 uh, and then went up to the next letter, which would have been presumably W. Um, although I know that they may have skipped W because it's too easy to, to, to confuse a W with a V. So they may have gone straight to X. I know there's a lot of X numbers. Um, so that's just the job number for this particular story. And if you look at the other uh, stories in Amazing Fantasy 15, they all have job numbers that are fairly concurrent. I don't know what they are precisely off the top of my head, but I would guess that one of them is V790 and V791 because that was the order in which they were either written or or uh, drawn. And that's how they existed on, on Marvel's books to make sure that you know, when, when the work was done on them, they got paid for. You hear that, collectors? You can get V800, and it's worth a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark, let's turn the page then and uh, talk about page number nine. All right, and let us hear about also it. Also known as page number eight. Uh, Peter is hounded by producers as he leaves the stage, but backstage, a thief runs past him, chased by a police officer. Peter lets him pass and he escapes into the elevator. The cop chastises Peter, who tells him that it isn't his job to stop thieves, that he only looks out for himself. Back at home, Peter is gifted a microscope by his aunt and uncle and thinks to himself that no one else matters, just as him, just himself and his family. Tom, what do you know about this page that we don't know uh, before we talk about it generally? Um, well, there's a big change that was made on this page between the pencils and the inks, and, and that is that what is currently panel four here was a completely different panel at one point and uh, uh, was, was changed. But before we get to that, in panel two, uh, there's a note from uh, Stan to Steve, and the entirety of the, the, the note I couldn't decipher. I could just get most of it. So it reads, Steve, this something, no sense to be happy, brackets, without any smiling. So it seems like, you know, when the when the uh, the burglar, the crook, is running away from the cop in 
Ditko's original pencils, he was smiling like, ha I'm getting away from this guy. And Stan felt like that didn't make any sense. He's being chased by the cop. He's not that far ahead. Don't make him smiling. But in addition, next to panel three, there's an erased note from Stan that reads, Steve, omit crook, show door slamming. What Stan wanted was that third panel to not have the burglar there at all, not to see him, but to just have the elevator door closed already at that point. Uh, and then the fourth panel, and there's no note about this, but having you know boosted the gain up, I've been able to 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 you know see evidence of the erased pencils. There's a panel with the guard running up and confronting Spider-Man, who has his back to the camera. Uh, you can really see the head of the guard most clearly of of the stuff uh, you know that that uh, you could make out at that point. So so this confrontation that Spider-Man has with the elderly guard when it was penciled was three panels long. Uh, and at some point, because clearly in panel three, uh, Ditko didn't make the door closed and didn't get rid of the, the guy, uh, he and Stan must have talked further about this page and what was required. And so they tweaked the expression on on the burglar's face in panel two to make him not smiling. You know, they show him still in the elevator with the closing doors in panel three. And Ditko adds a new panel, which is a close up on the smiling burglar who has not got now gotten away, presumably a way of going, well, he's happy that he eluded uh, a capture. And that, that was a point that for whatever reason, Ditko felt was important. So you lose one panel of, you know, the tired guard coming up to, to Spider-Man who's just standing there with his chin hanging out. That, that That's it. Yeah, so this looks like a, pa- a page that was conceived exactly this way. But in fact, uh, it was slightly different when it started. Tom, obviously a lot over the years has been made about Ditko's, you know, philosophy, if you will. Um, and, and you know, you we really don't truly get it in this comic until this page, I feel like. I mean, I feel like this is kind of like the the objectivism on full display here. I mean, you know, both Spider-Man's initial uh, nonchalance about, you know, that's not my job, that's your job. But then also the, the, the last two panels with him and Ben and May being like, well, nothing else matters except for us. So, I mean, did, did, you know, to your knowledge with, you know, Dicko and, and Lee, I mean, did, did, did that kind of you know, did, did Dicko's philosophy kind of come out in the comics prior to this or was this kind of maybe a trial, you know, again, seeing himself as the character, an opportunity to kind of get that out there? Um, at this point, and I'm, you know, I'm, I couldn't tell you with any certainty exactly when Ditko be- began to become influenced by the philosophical teachings that clearly became his, his lighthouse in later years. Um, I don't think you really start to see evidence of them in his work until later than this. Um, so while I think you can definitely sort of project those ideas onto this scene, I don't know that anything that complex was going through either man's mind. Uh, I think this is a simple morality tale. Uh, in fact, years later, there was a point in the 90s when for, for a brief second, it looked like Ralph Macchio was going to get uh, Ditko and Stan to to do one last new Spider-Man story together. Uh, and Ralph had known Ditko for years and they, you know, they talked and, and worked together and so forth. And they talked about Spider-Man a little bit, you know, in preparation for this thing. And, you know, one of Ditko's observations about this is, you know, left to his own devices, he never would have had Spider-Man graduate high school because in his estimation, uh, it's okay for uh, a teenager, for a kid, 
to make mistakes and to do the wrong thing and to mess up. Uh, and that's forgivable because a kid is still learning and figuring out his place and so forth. Once he gets to a certain age, once he becomes a functional adult, he must, uh, you know, uh, talk the talk and walk the walk as an adult does. Uh, and so, you know, in Ditko's mind, once you get Peter Parker to the point where he's in college, it's no longer okay for him to screw up in the way he screws up here and the way he screws up in so many stories. At that point, he's not just a kid learning. He's a, he's a foul up adult who's, you know, not able to take care of himself. Um, so I think that there's a little bit of that here. This is almost more, I mean, some of it is just the simple morality tale of, you know, this is, this is the turn point. Uh, he, you know, kid gets the powers, kid uses the powers selfishly, kid refuses to do an altruistic act, kid pays the price for that, you know, through a twist of fate, kid learns lesson. You know, that's the, the simplest version of the Spider-Man story. So, you know, what this is, is definitely that, you know, could that undercurrent have been there? For, for sure. You know, Ditko certainly felt strongly about some of these beliefs later in life, and I don't know when he began to read and absorb and and make them a part of his personal ethos he may have been influenced by those thoughts uh, and those philosophers at this point and it may as you say be a part of what's going on here um, but again to some degree you also have to think about these pages without the copy because the copy is what stan is adding and there's nothing necessarily in the visuals that say you know, I'm going to take care of Aunt May and, and Uncle Ben and screw the rest of the world. That's the way Stan interpolates what the visuals are telling us. What, you know, what, 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 what's there on the page is simply Spider-Man lets the guy get away. He goes back home and his, his, uh, you know, uh, parental figures have this gift of this micro microscope for him. Uh, and, and he's happy and, and uh, they love him and he's on top of the world and everything is great. So that context could definitely have been something and probably was something that to some degree Lee and Ditko discussed, but the way it's expressed here, it's entirely dialogue. So most of that probably leans more heavily on Stan. All right. Well, let's turn the page to page 10. Mark, tell us what happens on page 10. Yeah, well, the, the, the newspaper headlines say it all. Spider-Man is a sensation. We get like a little mini montage in a panel here showing that. But Peter gets home from a gig one night and sees a police car in front of his house. He asks the cop what's going on, and the cop breaks the dramatic news very bluntly. His uncle was killed by a burglar. He surprised him. The cops are holding off the burglar at the Acme warehouse while Aunt May is at a neighbor's house. Peter knows a burglar could hold off a small army in that warehouse, so he gets into his Spider-Man costume and is committed to bring him to justice. Big, big scene here, Tom. What's happening that we may not know about? On this page, absolutely nothing. <laughs> what, what, you, what, what you see is pretty much what you get. There's, there's nothing on the original art that indicates any particular changes or tweaks or whatever. It is worth noting that that first panel here, you know, which has four separate headlines and granted they're from different fictitious newspapers so maybe they could all have been a reference to the same uh, event mm. uh, but this certainly implies that spider-man even apart from the the tv appearance we've already seen does at least five gigs five jobs as a performer before this point and before uncle ben is killed and that means there's a bunch of questions at least in my head one you know, eventually in Amazing Spider-Man 1, Stan and Steve do the kind of fun uh, gag where 
they pay Spider-Man by check and he can't cash the check because he can't bring me Spider-Man. But he's done five gigs here. Where's the money? What's he doing with it? I assume yeah, the, right? you know, the web fluid costs a certain amount. But like, how is this? How is this? He's not doing this for free. Clearly, he's getting paid for all of these television appearances and public appearances. Where is the money? Two, even if these are daily events, he does one show every day. It's been at least a week. He's a TV star. He still hasn't told, forget about his agent. He hasn't told his Aunt May or Uncle Ben about any of this stuff. They're scraping together pennies to buy him a microscope, and he's living large somewhere. He's got some, some uh, you know, Walter White-style uh, 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 storage facility that he's that he's stacking, you know, uh, bundles of dollar bills up in while they're struggling at the at the house. Like again, it's it's this way because it's a superhero origin. He needs to keep his identity a secret. They know that that's where they're going, and so they just kind of slough past it. Uh, and you don't really think about it too much in in reading this. It's a montage panel, but you know, looking back at it, it's kind of like yeah. None of that really makes a lot of sense. And this is also why, uh, you know, when you get to things like, you know, the first Spider-Man movie, like they make a very clever adjustment in that, which is, uh, you know, the burglar gets away from Spider-Man and, you know, shoots Uncle Ben while Ben's waiting to pick Peter up in the car downstairs. So you don't you lose all that time in between. It's literally much more immediately set up punchline. And there's a reason why Uncle Ben is there. He's there to pick up Peter, who's at he's taken and dropped off at the thing, not necessarily knowing he's going to the wrestling thing. He's he's thinks he's going to the public library or whatever. But it avoids all of the questions that naturally arise in this story. But in a you know in, in a superhero comic of 1962, this was far from the least plausible thing that would routinely happen. So. You know, you, you kind of can just go buy it, but it's 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 fun sometimes to stare at this stuff and go. And and none of these newspapers spell his name right. None of them have a dash. <laughs> so he's well, not enforcing his trademark or anything. Jonah <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Held to a higher, a higher journalistic standard, like JJ. Uh, exactly. Tom, I'm going to pitch you Amazing Spider-Man 1000 right now because he's got that money stashed in the Acme warehouse. <laughs> and by a twist of fate, he wasn't actually <laughs> intending to stop the burglar. He was trying to cash out and was forced into this heroic role. Yeah. Uh, so in there- my in my head, every time I read that, I, I envision the warehouse that's got all of the, the weird high tech gizmos yeah. that that wily e. coyote orders to to, to to try and capture and kill the roadrunner. Let me get my magnet so and roller skates. Yeah, the burglar should have just grabbed, you know, something from one of the crates and, and skated. Uh, you know, it, it would have been it would have been uh, it would have been pretty easy. Can we talk about this creepy floating head of Spider-Man in the upper right-hand corner of this page that is always, like, very much unnerved me? It's not necessary at all for the page, and yet, like, I, I, I can't help but feel stylistic flourish from Steve Ditko there. Sure. I, I, honestly, the odd thing about that is that he gives him the indication of the nose. Like, you're not used to seeing that on a Spider-Man head. Uh, and so just that little thing, that little shadow... Uh, you know, changes the expression on that face. It's no longer just the eyes that make up the expression. It's the eyes and that hint of a nose. Uh, and it just, it you know, it looks weird. And part of the reason it looks weird is 
they haven't figured out what the iconography of Spider-Man is going to be yet. You know, all through this story, they they manipulate that mask in ways whenever they need it for effect. And this is kind of one of those one of those times. Like it it adds a little thing. It gives him a slightly uh, different expression than you would have if you took it out and it was just a a spidey head there. He'd have a little less express expressiveness. Uh, to himself. Well, they can't even figure out like how many pieces his costume is because on, on panel six on this page, you've got the mask attached to the, the suit. Whereas at the end of the comic, he clearly can take the mask clean off to reveal his face. So, well, pres- presumably, you know, you can do it in different, in different parts. You know, you can just you can detach the mask at the neck, but you can also attach it at the neck so it's seamless and the shirt comes down over the the, the, the tights, um, you know, where he'll eventually put the belt of web cartridges. But uh, but, yeah, they, they, they weren't worried about being consistent with that sort of stuff. They just did it. Um, I think if you, you know, scroll back to whatever is page five or page six when he's first putting the, the costume together, like the mask is clearly in his hand. It's a separate piece. Here it functions like the 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 mask in uh, in the seventy seven Japanese TV show where you pretty much had a zipper across the back web pattern and the actor could pull the mask off but it was all attached to the to the onesie and it shoots out of your wrist in one piece. All right, so let's uh, move on to page eleven, the penultimate page of this tale. Peter shoots a web at a nearby lamppost and web swings for the first time. He arrives at the warehouse where the cops are mulling over how to apprehend the burglar. Spidey slips in and surprises him from above, scaring the man and sending him fleeing. Tom, anything special going on in this page? Again, nothing special here. What you see is very much what you get. That first panel in pan, you know, panel two of Spider-Man swinging, uh, it's a really awkward looking panel. <laughs> uh, and, and in some ways that's appropriate because, oh, it's the first time he's done it and he's a kid and so forth. But you can see they haven't, Ditko hasn't worked out what this looks like yet. Uh, and he'll just get better and more adept at that as he goes along and figures out what works and what doesn't. Um, but looking back at it, it's a really weird uh, looking looking frame. Well, I've always liked that in the second panel, There's you, know, you can see the remnants of whatever that, post is that's sticking out of the building still there so there is the kind of early implication that he he could transfer from line to line midair of course then by panel five we do get a quintessential spider-man pose in terms of him scaling down the side of the wall uh, approaching the burglar i mean you know and it seems like uh dicko got the physics of it a little bit better than he did earlier with with his leg kind of clanging in the weird direction so i mean but i mean yeah. i just love and, that and <laughs> panel six is a, is an interesting choice too because ditko kind of like throws away the the whole right quarter of that panel it's all just the silhouette of the wall uh, and and to get that diagonal so that you understand that it's a wall and not a panel border or something um but that's like a really weird shot to, to see somebody at that down shot where you're kind of looking under his ribs and through his arms and the, the burglar is down uh, you know, b- below him. I, again, those are sort of the, the, the kind of images. Uh, it's particularly effective coming fr- after the previous panel, which was a, a, you know, a, an upshot, a worm's eye shot, you know, camera set up beneath the burglar and looking up past him at Spider-Man on the wall. So again, these are, these are very dramatic and interesting choices. And you wouldn't see, 
panels framed that way in any other strip. Like no other character moved like this, even in this first story. You know, you can't find a, a Green Lantern story where he's posed anything like this, or a, a panel is framed in that way, or a, a Flash story or a Hawkman story. They just don't exist. I've always appreciated the geography of this scene too. Like it's very clear despite the strange angles that you're talking about enough that like uh, when Sam Raimi reproduced it, it's almost like framed exactly the same way in that he's above the burglar. He leaps over him. Um, It's very clear on the page, like how this physically is, is playing out. It's, It's something that I think Dicko is usually pretty good at with his action sequences. If there's nothing else to say about this one, why don't we move to maybe the most important page of this comic, page 12. Mark, tell us about uh, page 12. Well, Spider-Man corners the burglar using his web to disarm his gun and then lets his fist do the rest. But after landing the decisive blow, he recognizes the face of the burglar. It's the fugitive who ran past him at the television studio, the one Peter didn't stop when he had the chance. Meanwhile, the cops are getting ready to give up when the burglar is delivered to them out of the window on a spider's web. Tear-strucken Peter bemoans that his uncle's death is all his fault. He then slinks off into the quiet of the night while the narrator opines those famous words. With great power, there must also come great responsibility. Then a teaser at the bottom of the page promises more of this, quote, teenage idol with a hyphen, uh, in the next issue of Amazing Fantasy. We probably have about three you know, all-time iconic panels in this page here, Tom. The pupils, of course. Uh, where do you want to even start? <laughs> um, well, let's talk about the stuff that's not here. That really is in panel six. In panel six, that panel where the burglar is being lowered down on the web and two cops are looking up. When Ditko penciled it, there were three cops. And there's a third cop that's next to the guy on the left, uh, and he's still fairly clear in the in the pencils if you look at the scan good enough. Um, there is a note in the border um, that's from uh, Art Simic, the letterer, and it's it, it reads, "Sorry about this. Have Steve lifted up with an arrow to pointing pointing to where that bottom caption goes up. Like he he that, that caption had to be high enough up that he obscures most of that." where that second cop was. And I think Ditko, when he was, you know, got the page back to ink, just went, ah, it's easier. I'll just take him out rather than repencil him or move him. He's not that important. It'll work fine with two figures. The other thing that's pretty clear here, especially if you look at the original is at the time the story was done, they hadn't made the decision yet to change the title of the magazine to Amazing Fantasy. And that what was originally lettered in that space was Amazing Adult Fantasy, which is why if you look at the word fantasy, it's kind of stretched out and it's got three random dashes after it to obscure the, the, the space because adult fantasy takes up a lot more space. Also, the most minor thing, Of all, in a world, in the last panel, there had been a little corner box number indicating that it was page 11. But having two other captions there already, they decided to black it out and and take it out for the final book. As you say, you know, like probably the, the most surprising and maybe the most compelling panel here, you know, from contemporary eyes is panel four, where you see the the uh, the pupils through Spider-Man's mask as he does that take 
and it's 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 crazy. I remember seeing that just flipping through a copy of origins of Marvel comics, you know, at the local bookstore or whatever, and kind of doing a double take myself. Like, ah, that's weird. <laughs> what were they thinking? What were they thinking there? But again, it's, they haven't worked out the iconography of any of this stuff. And it's there for emphasis. It's there to give you that he's surprised. Um, there's at least one reprinting of this story where, where the reprint editor who really should have known better, whited out the, 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 the pupils because, Spider-Man's vast doesn't work that way. Got to fix it. And I'm I'm not a believer in tampering with st- stupid stuff like that. Yeah, it's dumb. Yeah, it was. It wasn't even a mistake. It was a decision. It was a choice here. You don't get 40 years after the fact or whatever to rethink the decisions that Stan and Steve made in this story. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But so does not, neither does half the other events in this story. You don't have to fix them either. For whatever reason, looking at that burglar's face, Spider-Man's eyes, bloom out to, to to give you that that tex avery sort of take uh moment uh, and again there he's got a little indication of the shadow under his nose which also intensifies that expression tom you bringing up the you know in the bottom part the the hyphens used to kind of stretch out the space is now making me wonder a little bit you know obviously that very last panel with uh with great power we do have some some hyphen work thrown in there to kind of stretch that out is there anything to that or is that just for emphasis that's just for emphasis there must also okay. come pause great responsibility okay i just didn't uh, know it was like no there was three more words we were gonna add <laughs> like uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Like, very <laughs> very great responsibility yeah, yeah. Was very that. very <laughs> great uh, no, no, no. There, yeah there's Understood. no correct there's no correction there that's that's how how uh, simic lettered it um you know there's some minor correction stuff uh you know elsewhere on the page but it's not it's just typical stuff where, you know, already made a mistake and fixed it. Are you are you privy to any of the behind the scenes of this motto being attributed to Uncle Ben in Spider-Man versus Wolverine and the kind of evolution there? I mean, we take it for granted now that Uncle Ben said this to Peter at some point, you know, but it was a long time until that would become like a very real thing. Yes. Well, uh, you know, again, probably the thing that cemented it in everybody's head more than anything else was that first Spider-Man movie, mm-hmm. because that's how they do it there. And that's how, you know, modern generations where they most likely first encounter or majorly encounter Spider-Man is watching that Tobey Maguire Spider-Man one. Um, I don't know if it's available on Disney Plus right now, but Disney Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I I'll, I'll take your word for it that the first time it's attributed to Uncle Ben is Spider-Man Wolverine. I don't know that for certain off the top of my head. Uh, I do know that again over the years a couple of things happened with it. The phrase changed to to with great power comes great responsibility. It streamlined down that way for a long time, uh, and uh, it's it's a constant fight to get the, the the correct version to 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 be used consistently. You know, even again, even in that that first Spider-Man movie, what Uncle Ben tells him is, "With great power comes great responsibility," and you want to smack him. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, it, that means that means something different. That means that uh, that responsibility is endemic to the power you were given, and not the, the the actual point here, which is that to use that power well and properly and wisely you must also accept the responsibility to do so which is the point you choose it doesn't happen automatically 
Do you have any thoughts on this forlorn image of, of Peter? It's, it's always been a favorite of mine just for its inclusion in a superhero book. It's just such an odd image to end the book with. Do you have any thoughts on, on that particular image? Um, well, it's a, yeah, I guess it's a good image. You know, certainly Ditko knows that Stan is going to write a bunch of stuff there. And so he leaves him <laughs> a ton of room. And even with all the room that he's left him, Stan still needs to add another caption that goes completely across the bottom, cutting out poor cop number three uh, in, in, you know, in panel six. So, so to some degree, the problem intimates the solution, which is, okay, says Steve, I've got a panel. Stan's going to blather at the top and the bottom, so I'm going to lose that. I have this much space in the middle, so Peter's got to be tiny. So I do him that way. It's going to have to probably be silhouette because there's not a lot of detail I can get at that size. Carbon Infantino-style cityscape on either side, moon in the, in, the, in the sky above him. He's just a silhouetted black figure that you just see really like the spider symbol on his back and the belt maybe, and, and that's it. You can Even at that distance, that costume is so well designed that you can tell that that's Spider-Man. But again, I think that that was much more a case of it's the end of the story and it's the first part of what's going to be a series. So Stan is not only going to end the story with the, the, the moral, he's also going to have to say, and there's going to be another one next month. So come back because it's going to be the most exciting thing ever. Better leave him a lot of room. So I think that that's more than anything. In some ways, the panel before that is really the finale. And that's just kind of like visually the denouement. But it's definitely evocative. You know, Ditko was always very good at his use of, of a silhouette and, and composition and so forth. And that's probably a more effective panel if you take all of the words off of it and just imagine, right, black at the bottom and open sky at the top. Uh, and, it, you know, the framing on it, uh, you know, Spider-Man's figure is dead center. He's like a bullseye uh, in that in that frame and framed by the city around him that sort of closes in and is oppressive. And uh, you know, even there in that tiny little figure, you get a sense of him being sad uh, and, and, you know, bent over, even though it's so tiny, there's no details at all. Well, as the bottom of the page says the end and, and thus brings an end to our uh, page by page discussion of this. But Tom, before we conclude it, I'm curious if you've had any reflections on this book now that it turned 60 you know there's been this whole process at marvel of commemorating this anniversary whether you know with the amazing fantasy 1000 somewhere we missed like i think like 950 issues of amazing fantasy <laughs> i i tell you i tell you as, as regards that uh, and i'm going to get this out there in the world because that title is wrong that title is wrong, and it wasn't my choice. It wasn't my book. It wasn't my fight, and it wasn't my thing. But that title bothers me and will bother me to the end of my days because that book was supposed to have been titled Amazing Spider-Man 1500. Oh, oh. Tell, tell us more and, about that. <laughs> well, that that's it. It was when we when it was first conceived or when the first idea – I mean, it, 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 it's a fairly obvious thing. We did Marvel Comics 1000 for the – uh, the 80th of Marvel, Spider-Man's anniversary is coming up, and somebody, it wasn't me, but somebody said Amazing Fantasy 1500. Amazing Fantasy 15 is so well-known, and 1500, they, there you go. But at a certain point, there was a concern, and it's not 
a wrong concern that, you know, between Marvel 1000 and like Action Comics 1000 and Detective Comics 1000, that fans and in particular retailers understood what a, what a thousandth issue was. It's going to be an oversized celebratory yada, yada, yada. And maybe 1500, they don't understand so much. And so they're more hesitant to order it or whatever. I don't know all the ins and outs. I wasn't really a part of those discussions. That was all Nick Lowe, the Spider-Man editor dealing with. But in the end, the decision was made, and I'm sure it was for good reason to call it Amazing Spider-Man 1000. But damn it, that's Amazing Spider-Man 1500, because of course it is. I mean, is there is there any... Con- is there any concern that people might mix it up with Amazing Spider-Man 1000, which is actually coming in in the next like you know few years? Um, maybe. I, again, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so, and I wouldn't worry about it. In that, yeah, it's similar. Yeah, it's 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 Spider-Man, but uh, a couple of years will have passed, and even if they, you know, it's not like they, they, people are going to suddenly think, oh, that comic they did two years ago, they're 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 putting it out again for some reason. <laughs> You know, like most of our most of our audience is 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 smarter than that and more knowledgeable than that. Again, this is this is entirely an aesthetic question on my part, rather than uh, you know uh, any particular other consideration. And there's nothing wrong with it being called Amazing Spider-Man or Amazing Fantasy a thousand. Like it worked fine. People liked it. It was a great book. Nick got some terrific creators to do stories in it. I liked it a lot. And I don't like saying that about anything Nick does. Um, (laughs) But, you know, again, in my heart, it's one of those things where Amazing Spider-Man 1500 is better. It's just better. (laughs) Okay. Well, that grievance aside, do you have any reflections on the 60th (laughs) anniversary of of this title? People have been trying to duplicate this uh, pretty much since the day it came out. You know, like really, in terms of characters that spawn from comic books, Spider-Man is maybe one of the three best known, best, most universally recognized characters. I would say that only Superman and Batman are equally or and perhaps more greatly known. And these days, a bunch of the Marvel characters are starting to become more well-known uh, around the world. People generally know the Hulk and definitely these days know Iron Man and so forth. But in terms of the real icons, if you took a machine gun and shot down everybody else who were not as part of the culture, you'd end up with Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man. That's so and violent, Superman Tom. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know... I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm prone to that. Unlike uh, unlike Peter Parker, I never learned about the responsibility and the power. I'm just drunk on the power. Okay. Um, so so like every you know everybody when they when they try to do a new strip, including my myself with, with my guys, you try and go out or you want to build something for the ages. And you know it's 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 not impossible. But it sure is difficult. You know, Superman and Batman were created or at least published within a year or so of one another. And nobody since has done anything that's on that level except this. You know, other things have come close, have been have been good. It's not like there haven't been great characters. You know, Wonder Woman is probably a number is probably in the number four slot, and certainly people know, you know, Captain Marvel and any number of other other characters, you know the flash and and you know whomever else but to to be that iconic nothing else nothing else equals this and uh, really 
even beyond Amazing Fantasy 15, you know, when you get down to the the whole, the body of work that is those Lee and Ditko uh, Amazing Spider-Man stories, you know, I love the the Lee Kirby Fantastic Four. It's it's my favorite comic of that period. But if you corner me, I'll tell you that the best thing qualitatively that Marvel did in those days was the Lee Ditko Amazing Spider-Man. Those those books are rock solid, uh, and they're so ahead of their time and so forward thinking. And people have tried to to duplicate this formula over the years again and again with you know characters like Nova or Firestorm or Darkhawk or a dozen others that that showed up in one issue and disappeared the destructor and and guys like that and and none of it has ever been able to tap into just the primal appeal of all of the elements that are in this 11 page story that kind of came together haphazardly. You know, there's a whole Byzantine backstory as to how Spider-Man became a feature in the first place. That's that's very complicated and involves a lot more people beyond just Stan and Steve. But for all of those dominoes to fall in the right way so that you would get something as, as uh, legendary and as impermeable, uh, you know, beyond any other Marvel character, this character will exist long after all of us are gone and pretty much long after everything else is gone, you'll just be, you know, down to, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, maybe Sherlock Holmes, maybe Tarzan or somebody, you know, it's, 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 it's staggering to actually stare at it. And somewhere in the post-apocalypse, hmm. there will be a perfectly CG seed copy of Amazing <laughs> Fantasy 15 sitting there unread. For- Sadly, it will only be a 3.5, uh. but that's the best, that's the best they're going to have. So, you know, you, you work with what you got. It's an old comic book. What are you going to do? And maybe some of those were damaged tonight while reading this. You, you, maybe well, it's a 3.4 now. Well, it is that time, Dan, time to hang up the webs, at least for now. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning into this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. And of course, a special thank you to Tom Brevoort for joining us on this episode. Thanks so much, Tom. What What are you working on now? I mean, I, I, I asked that question with a smile in my, in my, through my teeth that people could check you out. I mean, you, you, you're usually working on everything, but is there anything in specific you'd like to kind of plug or get out there for us? Well, I, I, I am editing, you know, what sometimes seems like all the Marvel comics. Uh, so you can, you can look for those at your, uh, your local comic retailer every Wednesday. I've also uh, started up a weekly newsletter at Substack that's perfectly free and chock-a-block full of uh, comic book history and, and uh, nonsense uh, from me. Uh, I'm still got the webpage, tombrevoort.com, which is where that amazing fantasy article and the other articles we've talked about uh, exist and can be perused at your listeners' leisure. And um, I'm all over the social medias on the on the Twitter and the Facebook and the Insta and the, the this and the that, uh, typically under some version of Tom Brevoort, T. Brevoort, that guy Brevoort, what's a Brevoort? Well, Tom, thanks again for for, uh, doing this with us. Thanks uh, for having me on again. You got it. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Tom. You bring so much. Sure. I really appreciate it. Happy to to do it. All right. Have a a good evening. Bye now. See ya. Take care. 
Hey, Mark, that was a really awesome conversation with Tom. I, I do want to jump in here to say that if you find this show entertaining and valuable, you can please, we would love it if you would consider supporting us. You know, first up, just recommending Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. We, you know, have guests like Tom Brevoort on. And then, you know, I look at the numbers of downloads and I, I'm not really this kind of guy that obsesses over numbers, although I like to kind of keep an eye on it. Because surely if I was really obsessed with numbers, it I wouldn't still be doing this. Uh, it would be great, you know, just to kind of spread the Spider-Man knowledge and awareness of our show to other people. So, you know, if you can give us a share or tell another fan or comic book lover about our show, we, we would love that. You know, one of the things you can really do if you really want to support us is become a member of our Patreon. That's right, Dan. We can only bring you all this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. We are constantly making exclusive content for our Patreon members, too. Uh, this upcoming week, Patreon members will hear Alan, Dan, and my review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 9. That's right. Dan is back. I'm back to review <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man comics with us. Yeah, I am going to be back for this one. And I also wanted to throw in, I've been doing something new that um, is truly exclusive for our Patreon members. I've been doing Twitter space discussions with all of the Patreon members because I want to hear what you guys have to say about the comic. So, you know, if you are, you know, someone that enjoys Mark and I and you want to engage with me and maybe I'll find a way to pull Mark in one of these days, you know, into the Twitter space, you know. Uh, this is an opportunity for you to share your thoughts. So if you really are like, hey, I like Dan and Mark, but I disagree with them on just about everything, come come join the Patreon and, and, and give us your two cents when we hang out in a Twitter space after each new issue. So I think for the past three or four issues, I've been, I've been doing these Twitter spaces and they've been a huge success. So I just wanted to call people out about that. So yeah, you can take $3.99, the price of a new comic, and put it towards a month's subscription to support our show and start receiving all of this Patreon content. So you'll hear every new review episode of our Amazing Spider Talk feed, you know, all those new issue reviews the same week that they come out in the stores rather than waiting, a, you know, like a month or so for it to arrive in our public podcasting feed. Uh, yeah. And if you contribute $10 a month, you'll gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. Plus, every episode we release a new episode specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. Yeah, and we want this to not be financially burdensome to anyone who contributes. So again, if you just share and listen to the show, that's awesome. We love you for doing so. But if you do have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. There's a link in this episode's description that'll take you right there and you can see all your different options. And of course, as we always say, a big thank you to all the members who already make our show possible. This episode was edited by Rick Coast. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack and Spider Madge. Plus, our introduction, animation, and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels. This was a lot of fun, Dan, but what do we got coming up next? 
Yeah, well, Mark, I've gotten a lot of emails about this, which is to say, when are you guys starting up the next season of the show? Will you ever be doing seasons again? You know, you name it. I've gotten the email about it. Yeah, we know. Like, I think our break after season five was like maybe longer than we intended. You know, we were letting my wife and I kind of experience pregnancy and now uh, childbirth and maybe we should have just immediately rolled into season six, but whatever. I feel mentally healthy. So yes, it is time for us to kick off season six in earnest. So in a few weeks, Mark and I are going to be kind of detailing what we're doing uh, for season six, but most specifically, we're going to be talking about the Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends era of Amazing Spider-Man and, you know, the kind of B books and other cultural events around that era as Spider-Man's comic titles ballooned in the late and mid eighties. So we'll have more information to announce soon, but if you are one of those people that's got my email on speed dial, you can stop. Mark and I are actually going to do this. I'm going to be back from paternity leave and we're going to get right back to doing our seasonal content. But we do hope this beyond amazing series, which is officially concluded now was enough to kind of sate you for a little while. I, I got to say, Dan, I'm appalled that people are harassing you about that. You have a child. <laughs> we, we gave people a 60th anniversary string of episodes. You got available Alan and myself reviewing the new episodes. What more do you people want? It's a podcast. My God. Anyway, like... <laughs> Like we are not we're not machines, people, but I, I am excited to to get into this season. Obviously, I, I think probably part of the reason why people are so excited is because this is um, probably next to uh, the Roger Stern run. It's probably a lot of people that follow our show closely. It's probably their favorite run of comics. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy, although we kind of got into that a bit during our Hobgoblin episode. So um, but I'm sure we'll touch on some of that fun again uh, over the course of the season. It should be a good time, Dan. But, you know, seriously, if, if you, you, you have the patience of a saint to deal with those emails, if anyone uh, reached out to me directly, we may not have fans <laughs> based on my response. <laughs> well, Mark, there's a reason I answer the emails. No, no, no. Look, I, it's nice to be wanted right like if i wasn't getting emails that would worry me more you know uh because then it's like well is anybody actually listening so i i appreciate the emails keep them coming i even you know mark i even finally got a piece of snail mail about it too we got a card in the mail i created this whole p.o box for people to write into and no one did it for a year so i went to go cancel the p.o box and then I found an, an, a card from one of our listeners in the P.O. box and I haven't written him back yet, but I'm going to. But it, it convinced me it was worth keeping it open for the card. So uh, so there there we go. You know, we, we are open to your your snail mail enough to keep a P.O. box open for a year. But uh, Mark, until next time, we have to leave everyone with our motto, the very thing that forms the backbone of our show. So, Mark. Until Amazing Fantasy 15 turns 100 years old and we get Tom Brevoort's Amazing Fantasy 1500, what's our motto? Of course, that motto is, with great podcasts, there must also come, dash, dash, the Amazing Spider Talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.